It's back to hair coursing this week with a new action plan from the CLA. We'll hear from them in a moment. Also, we've the last report of this campaign from Nick Morris at British Sugar. Nick, I can't believe we're nearly there. I know, yeah. Well, as uh, I'd like to say it's flown by, but I'd probably be <laughs> exaggerating. It's uh, been a good campaign and it's been nice just to see it through to the end. Indeed, more from Nick at Newark soon. And as well as the usual agronomy and grain prices, we've advice if you've got a drone but are unsure how best to use it on the farm. Yeah, there's a lot of farmers that have a nice little drone. They're taking lovely photos, which are great, but they don't really see the the end value in that. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. We've discussed the issue of hair coursing many, many times on the programme, too often, sadly, and it's not going away. And while we've heard of uh, some improvements in tackling the problem, we keep asking ourselves the same question. What more really can be done to try to halt the illegal sport? Well, the CLA has this week launched a new action plan. But how does it differ from previous suggestions? Ben Underwood can explain. Well, firstly, to say the plan's come about as a result of a a hair-coursing season like no other. A huge number of members being affected by by the crime, uh, damage to property, etc. So we've set about in this period before the next uh, season kicks off to put forward a plan to government and decision makers to really get to grips with this issue. And so the magistrates and the police take it as seriously as they should do. I mean, some of the you know people I've been speaking to, I know some of your members that have been speaking to you as well, it is terrifying what they're facing on their farms, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. These are hardened criminals who don't think twice on using violence. Uh, we have a lot of members with a fear of retribution, so uh, if they have indeed approached uh, any of these hair courses, then they're concerned in the longer term that they'll come back and um, do other things to their property and their family. So th- there is a lot of fear out there. Um, as I say, these are hardened criminals betting huge amounts of money, uh, and they have very little respect for, for property or people in rural areas. So what are you hoping will be done? What is in the action plan? Well, I think the two, the two real key ones, I mean, clearly um, in the action plan, there's six main points. A lot of them are, are things we're already trying to do. So working closely with the police, working together, making sure the public know how to spot hair coursing and so on. But two main specific areas we're really going to work on is um, some close work we're doing with the Sentencing Council to introduce specific sentencing guidelines for hair coursing. They currently don't exist. And that has led to effectively um, prosecutions that are, are minimal in terms of penalty levels, which really don't act as a deterrent. So we're trying to, to get to the grips of, of, of educating uh, and guiding the magistrates just how important this issue is. So that's the first. And then the, the second is allowing police to reclaim kenneling costs of dogs from offenders. So in Lincolnshire, the police force have been very effective in actually taking the dogs rather than the vehicles because it's the dogs that um, are worth a lot of money to the individuals carrying out this crime. Uh, but they're then having to foot the bill when they're, they're kenneling the dogs until they can follow through a prosecution. And we're saying that actually the individuals who are carrying out the crime should pay the costs of that kenneling. So these are all small tweaks, but I think um, culminating collectively in quite a powerful message out there that we really are fighting this hard. Seizing the dogs is, I mean, it's, it's hurting them, isn't it? I mean, it's, as you say, it clearly is having an effect in Lincolnshire and uh, hoping that you know, perhaps other parts of the country can now adopt that sort of idea. Yeah, and I think you, you, you highlight a crucial point there because I will say that 
Lincolnshire police have made a concerted effort this season to get on top of this. We've worked very closely with them to achieve that, but I have to say it does mean in our neighbouring county of Cambridgeshire, they have seen a real increase. So we do have this sort of almost perturbation effect where one county gets tough on the issue, the headquarters find out about it and just move on. So we do need to be coordinated right across the region to ensure that we stamp this out. I know also you're talking about additional training for you know, police callers, if you like, those, those who are answering the calls of 101, just to a better understanding of what the crime is and the urgency behind it as well. Exactly, and, and do you know what? That doesn't just stop at hair coursing. It's, it's the whole rural crime brief, which just seems to, to be a bigger and bigger issue. I think there is a lack of understanding in those call centres um, uh, on, on all sorts of things, whether it be ATV theft and fuel theft, it, they're not necessarily up to speed on just the impact that these crimes have on day-to-day running of a rural business. So, yeah, it's increasing that sort of educational process and knowledge. And what happens next with the action plan? What are you hoping will happen? Well, uh, so we've got an intensive period of work now um, as, as the season, dare I say it, touchwood tails off as the crops between begin to grow, uh, of, as I say, lobbying the Sentencing Council uh, working closely with the police and making sure that really, in a, in a sense, as the crops come off the ground at the end of the next harvest, that we're sort of match fit and in a better position to really hit these people hard. Ben Underwood on that hair coursing action plan from the CLA. On to agronomy with Sean Sparling. And Sean, you've seen hair coursing in action, haven't you? Good morning, Sean. I have indeed, yeah. I was driving home one evening last uh, October and there were three fellows in a four-wheel drive flying around a field of all-seed rape that I look after just outside Rugby. They couldn't give two hoots about the hares they're chasing, the dogs that they're using to chase those hares, or the people that they're with, because they left one of the blokes on the side of the road when they drove off. I took a perfectly clear HD photograph of that fella from about 15 feet away. I gave it to the police. I was interviewed twice by the police and I've heard absolutely nothing as a result. So I hope that these actions are actioned. I hope the words turn into something tangible because when the only punishment these fellas get is a slap on the wrist and their car impounded and crushed when the car was probably stolen anyway, um, if they can find them, that is. And what frustrates me is that the policeman said to me, we probably know who these people are, but there's not a lot we can do about it. I just think that needs to change. That really does need to change, because these people are an absolute menace, and until we get something solid in place, they're going to keep coming. Right, let's talk about agronomy. It's going to be short and sweet, because I've very little to add on what I've been saying for the last few weeks. The good news is, I know it's wet out there, but it could have been a lot wetter. A foot of snow gives you an inch of rain and with the six to eight inches that was laid on these fields blowing off the fields and blocking all the roads up whereas that wasn't good for motorists it was good for us because it saved us another 10 mil of rain or so getting back into these fields they didn't need it i think unfortunately looking at the forecast we are going to get some more rain so things are going to stay very very complicated this spring you have to prioritize things and at the moment if you're an all-seed rape grower your priority is nitrogen and sulfur on the oilseed rape. Let that be your priority. It's way too cold for Picloram and Galera if you've got some cleavers to control. Possibly not too cold for uh, Clopyrrolid or Shield if it's groundsel, mayweed, thistles, sow thistles that you're after. But at the moment, prioritise that nitrogen sulfur on the oilseed rape. Takes three or four weeks for the sulfur to get in and it's going to need that when it sets off, particularly if you are in a sulfur deficient 
um, site. Now, disease levels in oilseed rape remain the same. Light leaf spot low, saw some verticillium wilt the other day, but use the spot check initiative, know what you're dealing with, pop some leaves in a polythene bag in the airing cupboard for 48 hours. That will show you if, if it is light leaf spot that you're dealing with, and then bring that on following the prioritisation of the nitrogen sulphur. Winter cereals don't need a lot of treatment at the moment. If you've got Atlantis, Pacifica, Monolith, remember that has to go on to a dry black grass leaf. If you haven't got it, don't do it because you're wasting your time and your money. And if you have nutrient deficiencies in these fields of cereals, treat those before you go putting caustic herbicides on because you will see significant crop damage if the crop is under stress, particularly from nutrient damage. So look, I'm going to go because I'm absolutely fed up. I nearly want to go on strike talking about farming until things improve. Fingers crossed we get a wet week next week. After that, spring springs. Spring is in his hair. Well, it wouldn't be in mine, would it? Uh, thank you, Sean. Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. It's the penultimate week of the sugar beet campaign, although drilling is actually starting this week for the next campaign. It soon comes round. Uh, let's get the latest from Nick Morris at the factory in Newark. Nick, last time we spoke, you offered some cold weather advice amid fears of snow. Uh, looking out the window now, it's hard to believe it, but that snow certainly did fall, didn't it? Yeah, that's right, Sean, and, and didn't we brace ourselves? In fact, firstly, I'd, I'd just like to say I thought it was remarkable how accurate the forecasters were regarding the cold weather uh, and the snow that we endured last week. So well done to the Met Office. I think it's fantastic to enjoy a well... Uh, um, well, firstly, I thought it was remarkable just how accurate the forecasters were regarding the cold weather and snow uh, we endured last week. So, well done to the Met Office. As uh, was well reported across uh, across all of the news, really, most of our area was affected by snow last Wednesday and Thursday, and uh, it was particularly bad in the Lincolnshire Wolds, where the snow had drifted off, off the fields and into the roads and uh, in places was about six foot deep. Mm. Uh, we just managed to keep uh, the factory supplied with uh, with sugar beet and didn't actually suffer any lost production at this factory at all, which was a fantastic result given what we were we were all facing. We got down to about minus six, uh, which is not too detrimental for for sugar beet. Particularly, it was only for a relatively short period of time, and uh, our field staff have been out uh, this week assessing crops for frost damage. And uh, we're not currently seeing anything of major concern. However, of course, I would urge growers with crops still in the ground to heed the following advice, really, which is broken into three parts. So firstly, the most important thing is to regularly assess crops for any signs of deterioration. If you're not sure, then then just ask ask us. Uh, But this is really just concerning the crop that's still left to be harvested. Secondly would be to harvest any remaining crop uh, as soon as conditions allow and transport is available. Uh, I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, if a crop has just been subjected to frost damage, the time between harvest and delivery needs to be kept just to a couple of days, really, uh, because the crop will heat up once it's been harvested. And then thirdly and lastly, the most important thing of all, really, is to communicate with your harvesting contractor, Haulier and British Sugar Area Manager, just to make sure that all operations are aligned and prioritised as necessary, because... Uh, sometimes uh, it's easy to have a view of uh, a single farm but sometimes you need to see uh, an, a number of farms, haulage groups and indeed our whole factory supply so communication is key and we'll uh, do everything we can to support with that 
We haven't seen any crop in store that looks like it's been severely affected uh, by the cold weather. Uh, and it's usually pretty pretty tolerant and gets quite hardy uh, when it's sat in clamp. However, the same principle does apply, you know, inspection's key. Uh, and ultimately, what we want to do is get it into the factory before any deterioration occurs. With only two weeks left to go, though, the time available for the crop to come to much harm is pretty limited. And we should be able to prioritise any crops for delivery that have been subjected to any frost damage from the cold weather uh, before they actually deteriorate. So keep talking, keep looking at the uh, crop in the field and in the clamp, and uh, we can work together and make sure we get it all processed. Mm-hmm. So there's only around 1,000 hectares left to lift, which is sort of 4% of the crop we started with, so very, very little left to go. Uh, and we could complete that harvest within just a few days if we had some decent dry weather to go at so I look forward to hearing what you've got to say on that later Sean. <laughs> I'll try my best. So on to campaign numbers we're 178 days in now that's 95% of the way through with just two weeks left to go. Sugar content continues to hold nice and steady it's around 17.8% which is the same as the, uh, the the average for the campaign and average dirt hasn't changed either it really at uh, 6% so all things holding pretty steady for the time being we've now got 528 contracts finished, currently averaging 78 tonnes a hectare, which, if you remember several months ago, is sort of where I expected it to to end up. And uh, factory throughput today is currently averaging 9,568 tonnes a day, which is just under our budget slice number. So talking to our uh, factory manager last week, we've uh, got plans in place to try and catch up that last little bit of remaining before we, uh, before we finish. So here's the next two weeks, hopefully, nice, quiet, stable period in the factory and out on the farms. Let's hope so. Thank you, Nick Morris from British Sugar. I've useful advice if you're using or maybe thinking about using a drone on the farm in a moment. First, though, the latest from our friends at Open Field, and it's Kit Dickinson with the update this week. Morning, Kit. Morning, Sean. What's uh, what's been happening? Well, now that most of the snow has melted and and the roads have been cleared, we can see a little damage uh, to the crops now that they're emerging from the snow. And the grain market is back on track after a slow week due to the weather last week. Um, There hasn't been much activity on the farms. Most of the areas are still too wet to travel on. Some crops do look like they need some fertiliser now and then. Looking at wheat, it's been a busier week this week and we have seen the values rise on the back of continued dryness in Argentina and rumours that an ethanol plant at Hull will be starting intake from Monday next week. This pushed May 18 London wheat to four-month highs, narrowing the spread to new crop to £2.50 and reducing the discount against French wheat futures. Currently, there is no certainty on how much the ethanol plant at Hull will be taking. It could be anywhere between 5,000 and 50,000 tonnes per month. The ethanol plant closed in December last year due to negative operating margins following the crash in ethanol values and lack of support from the UK renewable energy policy. However, there has been an updated UK transport policy just voted through Parliament this week and details and particulars are yet to come out. There has been more new crops sold this week and values are still holding strong, so get in touch with your farm business manager at Openfield for more detailed prices. Oilseed rate still below £300 a tonne, and he's back over the week. £300 per tonne is the value most farmers are holding out for. Crushes have limited cover going forward, and there is still a lot of rape on farm. I think we will see more rape come to the market when we hit 300 Barley, old crop remains well supported for export and domestic use throughout the country. New crop barley is at a large discount to new crop wheat, circa £15 dependent on area, so maybe better to sell wheat forward rather than barley. 
This week has seen a rise of two to three pounds on feed beans, mainly to attract farmer selling. However, the weaker dollar is not helping values. Vegetable protein is in demand and prices have risen considerably. Soya, having increased by £50 a tonne over the last six weeks, currently at around £340 a tonne, and the rape meal has risen almost to £190 a tonne. If this trend carries on, it will continue to stimulate compounder interest in UK feed beans. Feed bean exports are also now slowing, but interest remains and there continues to be a succession of boats leaving with beans for the fish market. Most of these are going to Scotland, skinned and being fed to trout and salmon farms. And lastly, prices this week. Wheat, March, 144 to 146, X farm. May, 147 to 149. And November 18, new crop, 143 to 147. Milling wheat premiums are 5 to £10, dependent on area and quality. Barley, March 135 to 137, and May 137 to 139. November 18, new crop, 131 to 134. Malting barley premiums are circa £25 on old crop and new crop. Oilseed rape, March 290 to 295, very much area dependent. May 292 to 295 and November 18, new crop 292 to 297, little to no carry in the market at present. Feed beans, March 156 to 158 and May 160. New crop prices are available but dependent on area and quality, which we don't know yet. So please get in touch with your open field farm business manager to get detailed prices. Thank you, Kit Dickinson, open field. Last week on the programme, we were talking about farming for the future, robotics on display at the recent Lincolnshire Farming Conference. Well, one piece of technology being used by many already are drones. Last summer, we spoke to Michael Kang, known on social media as the Drone Man from uh, Kernia Aerial Photography. You can see so much more from the air, and lots of farmers are now using them to spot black grass. Um, you can put infrared cameras on them so you can sense wet areas uh, in fields. Um, numerous applications, even for livestock, you can see where your livestock are, are in the field and everything else. Well, it's fair to say some are using drones better than others. It's not as easy as buying a machine and starting using it. And a number of companies are now offering training courses to enable you to get the best out of the drone on the land. Sean Roberts is MD from Ruster. That's the Remote Unmanned Systems Training Academy. Well, we train um, operators from all walks of life, all industries, to get the relevant permissions uh, from the Civilian Aviation Authority so they can utilise them in their in their their businesses or start a new business focused around drones. I mean, drones are still relatively new, really, particularly mm. to a lot of farmers. They've been around a few years, but for a lot in agriculture, it's still quite new. And I think a lot, they might have a drone, but they don't know the real potential that it can give them. That's true. There's obviously the pretty picture benefits where they just take, put them up in the air and take pretty pictures, but there's a lot more you can do with that data from the, uh, the weed mapping to the plaque counting to the NDVI imagery. So it's just really learning about the different uh, tools that you can use to, to bring out the best of that data. Of course, there's, there's many rules behind this machinery as well, isn't it? You know, you can't just get it as a toy and play with it. Exactly, which is w- why the Academy is set up, so that we can educate people so they know the rules and regulations, so they fly legally and, more importantly, fly safely. So how long has Ruster been going? 
We've been going since 2015. Right. Uh, we've set up in Bristol and then we moved to Lincoln last year. So we've now got offices uh, on the west side of Lincoln. And are you getting uh, a, a lot of people showing an interest, presumably? Yeah, we still, it's amazing. Every day we'll get someone inquiring from a different industry, whether it's pest control uh, or, or something quite bizarre. And uh, yeah, it's very eclectic, very, very different mix of people well, it, yeah. it is amazing really just what a machine like the one we're stood next to can actually do nowadays isn't it it's fantastic i mean the camera itself is a 60 frames per second 4k camera it's uh, it's really advanced and the technology is, is continuing to grow sean roberts there from ruster well drone ag is also offering courses its md is jack rangham so drone ag is a drones for farming company we, the idea is that we um we take drone systems, test them, trial them on our own farm, uh, work out how we can best use them, what they're best for, and then develop training programs for those drones so that we can then teach other farmers how to use the drones to the best of their ability. A lot of farmers have got drones now. They're becoming more and more in use, but a lot don't really get the most out of them because they're not sure what they're doing, are they? Yeah, there's a lot of farmers that have a nice little drone. They're taking lovely photos, um, which are great, but they don't really see the, the end value in that. So our, our training course aims to teach a farmer how to use a drone as a, as a useful farm tool, you know, to get a lot of data out of it and a lot of useful information they can actually use to save money on the farm at the end of the day. Is it a two-day course, is that right? We, yeah, we do a two-day course. So the first day covers, um, in the morning, covers basic mapping, um, how to use the drone and the software together to automate the drone so it will map an area for you. In the afternoon, we go into crop scouting, so looking at your fields, seeing where areas are doing not so well, where areas are doing better, and using that data to, to, to target your scouting. Um, then we go into looking at field boundaries and margins, how you can use measurement tools in the maps um, for things like countryside stewardship applications. Um, and then second day is all about using the elevation tools to look at things like flood risk management um, and measuring for planning for new buildings and things like that as well. It is staggering, isn't it, what you can actually do with these machines now? Um, you know, they, they're originally they were bit of a toy like you say you could go up in the air and maybe take a nice photograph but actually you can do so much more with them can't you yeah i mean the systems have become really small relatively cheap and really reliable the cameras on them are really good now and combine that with the really powerful software and it's the software that turns them into something which is really really powerful and useful yeah, and obviously uh, Drone AG also I know you do uh, consultancy and that kind of things as well so there's more to the, the company than just doing the training yeah, yeah, the, the training is a big part for us, but yeah. we, we aim to provide the whole end-to-end -end solution, so the whole package. So we provide the drone systems themselves. We're a reseller for DJI, which is probably one of the biggest companies out there. Um, and we sell various different software packages depending on what the farmer needs them for as well. And it's, going back to the, um, the drones themselves, I mean, we've got a couple in front of us here. As you say, it can be quite an investment, quite a lot of, you know, spending a fair bit of money on it, but actually it can bring those savings and those efficiencies for the farm further down the track, can't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, time saving is, is a big thing, you know. Saving time, having a drone map a field rather than having to try and walk that field, it will save you time and you'll probably see more than you would from the ground anyway. Um, and then if you go into the more advanced things like looking at um, doing variable rate nitrogen, things like that with the drone systems, that's going to save you money on, on on how much nitrogen you're applying as well as well, benefiting the crop as well. So there's multiple savings to be had. I mean, you know, on our own farm, we, we would have easily covered the cost of a small drone system within one year, I would say, no problem at all. Yeah, yeah. And what, what got you started in this? What made you say? You said you got your own farm, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So we have a family farm up north um, where it's the, the third generation family farm. But for me, I started out in um, web design actually working for a, working for a company that sold drones and about two and a half years ago um, 
started looking more going back towards farming and agriculture and, and drones were starting to look like a really really good fit then and yeah we've we started to see the benefits and we're yeah, we're really pushing forward with how useful drones can be in agriculture now, really. Jack Rangham from Drone AG. Drones are great technology, but uh, only if used correctly. Of course, not always the best in certain weather, though. Is it drone weather this week? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, today's not too bad, actually. Little, if any, wind blowing from the east about five miles an hour. Temperatures at around 11 Celsius. Some rain to come by the end of the day, though. Particularly heavy rain, in fact, overnight tonight. Looking at uh, maybe uh, six or seven millimetres for a time. Seven the low. The wind from the east-northeast, 10, gusting at 15 miles an hour. A misty start again to your Monday. Patchy cloud through the day. Highs of around 9 Celsius. The wind from the northwest, 10 to 15 miles an hour. And then possibility of some clear skies overnight, Monday into Tuesday. That will push temperatures down to around 2 Celsius. First thing on Tuesday morning with the wind from the west, 5 to 10 miles an hour. A cloudy but mostly dry Tuesday by the looks of things. 10 the high again. The wind from the south-southwest, 15, gusting at 20, 25 miles an hour by the end of the day. And then overnight, that wind getting up again from the south. We're looking at gusts first thing on Wednesday of around 40 miles an hour. Should be dry overnight, 7, but come Wednesday itself, we are looking at quite a wet day, plenty of rain. That wind problem as well from the south. Temperatures peaking at around 9 Celsius. Then the latter end of the week, calming down a little bit, some sunshine possible. We're looking at daytime highs of around 10 degrees, overnight lows of between 3 and 5 Celsius, with the wind continuing from the south. And that's the forecast and another week's farming. Next week, we'll meet the NFU's new Chief Advisor for Combinable Crops. Jack Watts will tell us why it's such an important time for the crops and oilseed sector. We've got the right climate, we've got the right soils, we've got the right expertise um, to grow crops. You know, the vast majority of production around the world is limited by water. You know, clearly some years we have more water than we need to grow to grow crops, um, but we can only really do that when we've got access to the tools in terms of plant health tools to do that. So that's really important that we champion that. That's next week. Until then, whatever you got planned, here's to a good week's farming.